So we're up to chapter 2, Mishnah 9, and we're going to do 9, 10, 11, 12, because in many editions of the Perkyavos, it's actually lumped together as one Mishnah, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And it's almost uh, the second half of that is an introduction to Mishnah number 13, which we'll have to see next time. And if you compare this Mishnah to the previous Mishnahs that we've seen in Perkyavos, the previous teachings that we've seen, you'll notice a little bit of a shift. And we'll get into that uh, today and next time. So let's read it. At least, let, at least let's read the first Mishnah number twelve, Mishnah number 9, talk about it a little bit, and then see what we could discover. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai kibel mehillel v'shamay. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai received the tradition from Hillel and Shamay. So right away... You should hearken back to chapter 1 of Perti Avos, where it began, Moshe got the tradition from, from God at Sinai, gave it to Joshua, to the elders, to the prophets, men of the great assembly, and on, to, for, uh, to Shimon the righteous, and Antidnos, man of Soko, and each successive generation is linked to the previous one by this transmission of tradition. The teacher, the previous generation, transmits to the students, the next generation, and onward. And this is going to be the last of those links from Hillel and Shammai to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. From here on, we're going to have teachers and students, but we're no longer going to have this lingo, this stamp of one teacher transmitted to the next teacher. And the reason for this, the Talmud tells us, is because the students of Hillel and Shammai, they did not study under the tutelage of their teachers sufficiently. And therefore, at this juncture in history, talking about the the, the, the first century before the Common Era into the second century, in, in, into the first century of the Common Era, that's when this transmission, this, this transformation took, took place, or transition took place. Therefore, there was a little bit in a dis, of a disruption in the tradition. It wasn't given as pristinely as it was in previous generations. And therefore, there's a rise, a dramatic rise in what's called machlokas, in disputes, disagreements. And what we're told here is that the way to mitigate misunderstandings is to study more. And to study more intensely and more committedly for more time under the tutelage of your teacher. Because if he got it from his teacher completely, then he has all the information needed to give it to you completely. However, the vessel, so to speak, the recipient of the transmission of the tradition has to be committed completely. And only if there's complete commitment can there be a total transmission of the tradition from teacher to student. We're told that the students of Hill and Shammai did not do that completely, and therefore there were some problems in the chain, the chain got somewhat disrupted because now the students of Hillel, the students of Shammai, they bifurcated and they created different schools. And therefore, this, within these two schools, there arose significant amounts of disagreements between the two camps and even between people within the same camp. Now, over this century, from when Hillel and Shammai passed until the temples destroyed, there's a, a dramatic upswing in disagreements based upon the underlying cause, which was insufficient commitment to study under the teachers. 
Now, there's also external factors that contributed to this. It's not just that the people were more lazy uh, and less committed to Torah. There was a little bit of that as well. There was a little bit of an erosion of the commitment to Torah, at least relative. Uh, if we had the commitment today that they had then, we'd be very well off. But relative to previous generations, there was a, a little bit of an erosion. But there's also external factors, notably the rise of the Roman control over the land of Israel. When the Romans came and they planted their flag in the land of Israel, soon afterwards, lots of problems happened to the Jews and specifically to the rabbis in the land. We've spoken about this in the past, about Herod, for example, who was the Roman puppet king of, of, of Judah, even though he was, at least he claimed to be Jewish, and it was, it was a whole question whether or not he had legitimate claim to even being Jewish, much less being a king, but he undertook a campaign to assassinate as many rabbis as possible. And he, in fact, killed thousands of rabbis, uh, which can be used as, for us, looking back, as a way of understanding why there was this sudden change where previously there was this unbroken chain, and now we have Hillel and Shammai to Rabbi Yochum and Zakai, but, but no longer. Because Rabbi Yochum Zakai was one of the only ones of the students of Hillel and Shammai that did put in the requisite hours and the requisite commitment to study everything that he possibly could from his teachers. And therefore, he's the one who is given the stamp that he received the tradition from Hillel and Shammai, but he was the only one, and there was already a um, the culture of total commitment to the teacher in a way that could inspire this kind of complete transmission that already ended. And we'll see that his life, his, his life arc, is going to be very much connected to the new reality on the ground. We'll see about, about that in a little bit. Okay, so he's going to teach us a, a lesson, and then we're going to meet his students. And he's going to send his students on a little bit of a, uh, of a mission, of a hunt, and we're basically going to be dealing with his students almost until the end of the chapter. We're going to see the mission that he sends them to go upon and their findings and his critique of their findings and then some of the teachings from these students themselves. And uh, that's going to take us for their o- almost the rest of the chapter. But this particular mission is going to tell us just his own teaching before we get to his students. Pu Haya Omer, he would say, Im Lamarata Torah Harbei, if you have studied much Torah, do not take credit for yourself. Don't be prideful about it. Why? Because because it is it is for this purpose that you were created. So what I want to do here is give a little bit of a backstory of who Rabbi Yochanan Zakai was, and then we'll get into understanding his teaching, and then hopefully we'll have time to see a little bit about his students as well. So the Talmud gives us an epithet, so to speak, about Rabbi Yochanan Zakai's greatness. I want to read it to you here. And this is from the Talmud in the Book of Sutra on page 28a. His whole life, Miyamav lo sach sichas chulen. He never had an idle, any idle chit-chat. Rabbi Yochanan Zakai never spoke things that weren't relevant and important in Torah. There was no, like, nonsense. There was no banter. There was no a small talk. Okay, number one. Not bad. Velo halach dalad amos, below tefillin. He never walked for four paces without donning tefillin, wearing tefillin, and without studying Torah. 
And he, no one ever preceded him to the house of scholarship. There was never someone who was like, oh, I got there first before Rabbi Yochum He was always the first there. And he never slept in the house of scholarship. You say, well, okay, what he did is he stayed there the night before. That's how he was the first one there. No, he never slept. Not a, a complete sleep and not a – he didn't even doze off in the house of scholarship. And he never thought about Torah in unclean places. He had complete control over his mind that he was even able to kind of curb in the Torah thoughts in unclean places. He was always the last one to leave. No one ever stayed in the house of scholarship beyond when he was there. And no one ever saw him sitting and just his mind in some sort of reverie. He was always studying. And... He was always the first to the, to, the, to the house of scholarship, and he never said something that he didn't hear from his teacher, and he never announced it's time to go home. Only twice a year he would say that. There was two times a year he would say, okay, now it's time to leave the house of scholarship, the day before Yom Kippur and the day before Pesach. Those were the two days. that, that Those were the times to go home. Uh, again, these are obviously descriptions that are way beyond anything we could fathom, but certainly the Talmud gives us that to us. It's important for us to know that. If we're going to try to understand what he's saying, what he, you know, his persona and his greatness, and the most famous episode of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai is the gambit that he did uh, during the time when the Jewish people were the, at their most vulnerable state. He presided over Jerusalem. He was the greatest sage of Jerusalem during the great. Revolt and the subsequent siege of Jerusalem. We know the Romans, they had their ups and downs and how they treated the Jews. And in the year 66 of the Common Era, uh, there was a great revolt where the Jews revolted all over the land and they were protesting the Roman persecution of the Jews and the Roman lack of protection to the Jews and the Romans allowing the Jews to be exposed to their enemies. And uh, eventually... Uh, even though there was some momentum in the revolt, it was moderately successful initially, but the Romans eventually tried to stamp it out. And the last, uh, or one of the last bastions of resistance was the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as we know, is on a mountain, and it's quite eminently defendable from all sides. And it had very thick walls that were built by Herod. And, the, and it also had a good water supply and sufficient food and fuel storages. And it seems like the, they, the Jewish people could withstand the siege indefinitely. Uh, but as we know the story, there were a group of whippersnappers and rabble-rousers in the city that wanted to go out and fight the Romans. And the only way that they could figure out, the only solution to get the Jews out of their comfort zone was to sabotage the food sources and the fuel sources in the city. So they burnt down all the warehouses. And instead of getting the Jews to fight the Romans, they just got the Jews to just die of hunger. And there's very vivid and very macabre descriptions of scores of Jews dying on the streets. Those who were courageous enough to try to smuggle themselves out of the city to forage for food were captured and were crucified. Uh, The Roman tallies are between 300 and 500 people a day were being crucified and killed because they were caught. Really horrific conditions. And in the city, the venerated sage, Rabbi Yochum Zakrai, is trying to figure out what to do. And he realizes that it's quite likely that the siege will eventually be broken and 
the walls will be, will be breached and the temple that was standing for 400 and some odd years and was refurbished recently by Herod, the most beautiful building in the world, the epicenter of the Jewish spiritual life, that's going to be destroyed as well. But what's going to be the day after? And he feigned an illness, made believe that he was dead, had his students carry him out of the city in a coffin. The Romans allowed the Jews to go out and bury their dead outside the city. And once he was outside the city, he walks into the Roman camp. And he has a very fateful encounter with the Roman general overseeing the siege, Vespasian. And he impresses him by saying, first of all, he says to him, well, peace be, o- be unto you, O king. And even though Vespasian is just a general, he calls him a king. And Vespasian tells him, okay, you're now guilty of a capital offense because it's a capital offense to call someone who's not the emperor to call him the emperor. And he's like, no, you're going to be the emperor. Why? Because the verse tells us that Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. That's a verse in scripture. What's Lebanon? Lebanon's reference for the temple. And the mighty's reference for the king. And therefore, if the verse says Lebanon will fall in the hands of the king, of the mighty, therefore it must be you're the king. And as they're talking, a messenger comes from Rome and tells him, oh, the emperor died and they selected you to be the, his successor. As we, we actually know this, the year 69 is called the year of the four emperors because there's all kinds of emperors until finally Vespasian becomes emperor. He leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Rome and gives over the handling of the oversight of the siege to his son Titus, who, of course, will also in the future become an emperor after Vespasian dies 10 years later. But before Vespasian leaves, he's so impressed with this old rabbi, he says, I'm going to give you a couple of requests. And he does not ask that Jerusalem be spared. He does not ask that the temple be spared. Instead, he asks that the city of Yavna, the coastal city where all the rabbis had coalesced, that city be spared. And the family of Rabbi Gamaliel, the family of Hill, the family of the Nasi, they be spared. And the old rabbi, Rabbi Tzadok, who was fasting for 40 years, would only eat uh, every uh, once in a while to stay alive, that a doctor be sent to heal him. Those were his three requests, which were all granted. And indeed... Jerusalem was destroyed. As we know, we're about to mark the day that it was that the temple was destroyed. And many, many thousands of Jews were slaughtered during these times, during these three weeks. But Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai got what he wanted. And his the rest of his life, he was uncertain whether he made the right decision. And some of his colleagues they quipped that he made a big blunder. He should have asked, you have an opportunity to spare Jerusalem, at least. Take the chance and say, if you're going to grant me a request, maybe allow Jerusalem to survive. But his conviction was that such a request would be rejected, and therefore you'll have nothing. If you ask for too ambitious a request from Vespasian, you'll get nothing. So that's the one story that we see, the very famous story by Rabbi Yochum this calculation that Vespasian was already determined to destroy Jerusalem, but... What would the Jewish people need to rebuild after the devastation, after the destruction? They would need a strong core of great rabbis and great leaders that could inspire and give hope to the future of the nation and rebuild from the rubble of of what's going to be left from this revolt. And indeed, we know historically he was right and he made the correct decision. 
And my grandfather would always talk about this particular episode and highlight one nuance in the episode. Rabbi Yochum when he met Vespasian, you would imagine that Vespasian was attired as as general. I don't know how Roman generals dressed, but they didn't dress the same way that the emperors dressed. It wasn't like he made a mistake and said, oh, this kind of looks like a king. I don't know what kings look. I only know is what the books tell me, right? I don't know. You must be a king. No. He probably physically saw a general. Obviously, someone's overseeing the siege. But what does he, how does he call him? What does he, what honorific does he give? He gives him the one of a king. Why? Because of a verse in scripture that says that a king will destroy the temple. My grandfather pointed out that this shows us kind of the, the, the identity of Rami Yochumazakai. The way he saw the world, the lens through which he saw the world was Torah. And therefore, maybe his physical eyeballs saw a general, but he saw a king because the way he interfaced with the world was through Torah. And therefore, when he sees someone on the brink of destroying the temple, what does he see? He filters it through the Torah, and the Torah tells him, you're seeing the king. Even though your, your physical eyeballs show you something else, but you're not using that to tell you what's right and what's wrong, what's reality, what's not reality, you're using the Torah. And therefore, he labeled him as, which is an interesting thing, because we see this pattern throughout Rabbi Yochum life, and in fact, it's reinforced by other narratives. So for example, the Talmud in Brachos tells us that Rabbi Yochum was on his deathbed. And some of his students, including the students that we're about to meet, they came out to visit him. And when they walk into the room, he starts crying. And they say to him, well, why are you crying? And he tells them, well, suppose I was about to be ushered before a human king of flesh and blood. A human king, after all, his anger is not permanent. His punishment's not permanent. If he kills me, it's not permanent. And you know what? I could cajole him with words or bribe him with money. But now, and I'd still be terrified. But now I'm going before God. God's anger is permanent. God's punishment is permanent. God's death is permanent. God killing me, if God would kill me, is permanent. I cannot cajole him with words. I cannot bribe him with money. And I shouldn't be scared. That's what he tells them. And I think this, this episode reinforces this attitude of Rabbi Yochumazakai. To him, like the, 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 the physical king is one thing, but what's more real to him in his worldview is, is the spiritual world, is God. And therefore, he's more scared of God than he is of human king, whereas most people, it's the opposite. The human king is more tangible, more palpable, more real, whereas God, it's, it's like an idea. It's an abstract idea. And therefore, we're more fearful of human teens than we are of God. And then, it's interesting, his students ask him for a blessing. And he tells them, your fear of God should be like your fear of man. Be as fearful of God as you are of man. And his students are like perplexed. What are you saying? We should be much more fearful of God than we are of man. He tells them, no. When people want to do a sin, they look to and fro 
which are no humans watching them, even though, of course, God is watching them. And therefore, if only you'd be as fearful of God as you are of other humans. And I think this kind of highlights the transition that's going to happen for Rabbi Yochum Zakai to his students. As we saw, the Mishnah says that Rabbi Yochum Zakai, he received from Hillel and Shammai, but then that verbiage doesn't appear again. There's, there's, there's a, a step down in the spiritual acuity from Rabbi Yochum Zakai to his students. He was more fearful of God than he was of man. He viewed the reality of God, the reality of Torah, as more than what his physical eyeballs showed him. His students, he's demanding them to at least create parity. Be as fearful of God as you are of human. Not to be more fearful of God than you are. Just, just make those equal. Make, don't have the reality of God supplant the reality of the physical world. Rather, create parity between the two. What he's telling them is, I want you to aim for one rung beneath what I have. I'm more fearful of God than I am of humans. You at least create the reality where you're as fearful of God as you are of other humans. And again, that's what he's telling them to shoot for because he realizes that there is a degradation from his generation to his students. Uh, regardless, it's still pretty great. If we could emulate his students and be as fearful of God, have that be as much of a reality, as much as a palpable, tangible reality in our lives as other people, we'd still be pretty well off. Just today I was driving to the class and on one of these roads in Umble, it's like it's like a 25-mile narrow zone. And I'm kind of anxious to get here. I feel I'm a little late. And I'm driving like maybe 48 miles an hour. And then I see, ahead of me, I see one of those cars with some insignias and uh, I, 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 some decals on the side of it and lights on top. So I right away pumped the brakes. And I and he was like in the middle, the middle of the median, the car. And I'm kind of driving past like at 28 miles an hour. Don't stop me. We're good. Again, like the fact that there's a cop there and you're going above the speed limit is so real to us. And like right away you react and you adjust your behavior accordingly. What he's telling his students here is make believe that kind of God is always present over you and it's real and it's as real as the cop and therefore you'll always act accordingly. You know, if there was a guy who was under FBI, uh, I don't know, surveillance and there's always a cop behind him, they never speed because how could you speed when the cop's right behind you? So what is his actual teaching his teaching is, if you study a lot of Torah, don't take credit for, for yourself because this is why you were created. So I think this is a statement that breaks down into three parts. It's a statement about humility, it's a statement about Torah, and it's a statement about, about man. You were created, man was created in order to study Torah. And therefore, if you're just doing what you were created to do, you shouldn't be prideful. If you're just doing your job then there's no reason to be prideful. That's what he's telling us. Now, the commentaries go into a very complex analysis of the implications of this statement. Because what Rabbi Yochum is telling us is that the reason why man was created is to study Torah. It's a pretty 
audacious statement. This is why man was created. You were created in order to study Torah, and therefore you're just doing what you were created to do. And the problem is, is that there seems to be other teachings that's, that say the opposite, that we were created to do mitzvos, to do actions, not to do study, to do actions. And there's all kinds of debates in the, in the Talmud, in various places. Uh, for example, in Brachos, I believe it's 17a, Rava, one of the great sages of the Talmud, says, well, the objective of Torah study is actions of mitzvos and good deeds. So that seems to be the opposite. The objective is not Torah. The objective is mitzvos. And then there's the, the debate between the sages in the hiding out in the loft of Nitzah in the city of Lud. And the debate is over what's more important, Torah study or mitzvos. And initially, some rabbis say, well, it's mit- mitzvos are more important. And then Robert Hiva says, no, it's Torah that's more important. And finally, a consensus coalesces behind Rabbi Akiva that indeed Torah study is more important as Torah study begets mitzvos, which again seems to imply that mitzvos are the goal, but Torah study is the way to get there. We seem to be getting mixed messages. Is the Torah the goal? Is mitzvos the goal? So I, my grandfather had a solution, which I want to share. I think it's, it's kind of aesthetically pleasing. And he says that, yes, the Torah study is the goal, but mitzvos and perfecting our character and our behavior and our persona, that's the foundation. And he said a great example, in my opinion. Uh, the example is if you have a house or a building or a structure or an edifice, what is the most uh, – architecturally, what's the most important part of it? Of course, it's the foundation. But no one lives in the foundation. You live in the house. But if you don't have the foundation, you don't have a house. So similarly, the mitzvos, this is how my grandfather uh, couched it, the mitzvos, they're the foundation of the spiritual edifice, which is the human, that's the role of the Torah. But once that edifice, once that building has been erected, the actual activity, so to speak, that is the life of that person is is the Torah study. That was his solution. I wanted to look at it from a very from a somewhat of a different angle. What does he say? If you study a lot of Torah, don't take credit for yourself, for this is why you were created. I want to hone in on that last word. This is why you were created. It does not say this is why you were born. It doesn't say that. It says this is why you were created. Is there a difference between being created and being born. Maybe there is. So there is a Mishnah later on that delineates the five junctures of man. This is in chapter 4, Mishnah 29. It says, against your will you are created, against your will you are born, Against your will you live, against your will you die, and against your will you're giving you're gonna give a reckoning and accounting before God. So it tells us that there's five things that happen against their will. Being created, being born, living, dying, and giving accounting before God. So to me, this was an eye-opener that it doesn't say that this is the reason why we were born. It says this is the reason why we were created, which is even before we're born, chronologically. And I think what this is telling us is that Torah is very natural to us at a very basic level. 
what this is, I think, intimating is that there's junctures in the development of man. There's something being created when man is created and then when man is born. Today, if I ask people, is Torah natural? When you go to yeshiva, is Torah natural? It really isn't because to sit down and study for 10 hours a day demands a lot of discipline and demands that a person has to overcome a lot of resistance. If it was just so natural, this is why you're great, this is so supernatural, then it would be a lot easier. And anyone who studied Torah on a deep level, on an intensive level, knows that it's not easy at all. Well, why not? If this is why we were created, it should be very fluid, very natural, very innate. And the answer is, is that what he's hinting here is that this is why we were created, which means on the most fundamental level, a human is a soul. And philosophically speaking, when someone is born, there's all kinds of other ingredients that are added to the mix. A human is not a soul, a human is not a body, a human is a fusion of the two. So when it means we're created to study Torah, it's natural for us to study Torah, but that's before we're born. After we're born, it's actually a struggle because of all the other stuff that we're added. And therefore, the way we can maybe picture this, you have a soul on top of that is put all kinds of other stuff, which we call the body, we call the Yetzirah, the inclination, and therefore the soul is within us, but it's buried deep within us. And at that point, deep, deep, deep within man, well, that's Torah is very natural. But on the surface level, it's not natural. And therefore, yes, when someone studies Torah, they're connected to something very deep within them, and it feels natural and feels familiar post facto. But actually to do that is somewhat of a, str- a struggle. And what he's telling us is that if you really understand the depths of what makes up a man, a human, what makes up a human is something that at this very early level, at the level of creation of man, it's totally natural for that thing to engage with Torah. The only reason why it's not natural is because of all the other stuff. But therefore, what it's really telling us is that it's so basic, it's so fundamental and once you get that, there's no reason to be prideful. It's it's like when you go buy a car. There's all the things that are there's like five different trims. There's the most basic ones that all the cars have it. And then there's oh you can add leather seats and you can add the XM radio and the sky uh, the the sunroof. And if you have someone who's like showing off their car, they never show off the fact that it has they never show off the fact that it has an accelerator and has a brake. That's not at all what they show off. They show off the fact that it's got nice leather seats. It's got all these entertainment stuff. You can heat the seat or cool the seat. The bells and whistles are what people show off on. But the fact that it has the, the basic frame of the car, the basic accelerator, that no one shows off because every car has that. I would say uh, humans, Ramnoch Weinberg of Asia Torah would say, the humans are not prideful that they can digest. No one walks around with the teacher, look at me, I can digest. Even though it's super duper cool still to have. Your body's able to break down all the nutrients and all the vitamins and all the good stuff that you need of the food and discard it. Wow, what a skill. Like if, if, if no one had that and someone got that, that would be the most popular, most amazing innovation in all of human history. But no one's prideful of that because that comes built in. It's a, that, that, that's like a, a given almost. And therefore, what he's telling us is that if you realize 
that the soul is, is, is a given. It's built into who you are. And it's so basic. It's so fundamental. And in that level, studying Torah is so natural. It's like the basic amenities of every car. It's like the fact that you could digest. You don't even recognize that it's, that it's something to be prideful of. And that what he's in fact telling us, just in concert with that, is the fact that Torah is the natural law of the soul. And thus, by studying Torah, we're actually undoing and reversing some of the conditions that were foisted upon us afterwards. We're like undoing the fact that we have a physicality that is a barrier between us and God. We have a Yetzirah, which is a barrier between us and God. We're actually undoing that and we're restoring the human in the most pristine iteration of self as a soul. And that's, in fact, what we're doing. We're uncovering. We're uncovering the layers, the strata that are there to sever us from our soul and thus sever us from God by studying Torah, actually unearthing that and restoring ourselves the way we were. So to speak, when we were created, before we were born, we were created as this ideal soul. So the next Mishnah tells us about the five students that Rebbe Mazaka have. Now, it's important to stress, Rebbe Mazaka had much more than five students, but these are the five ones that are the really transformational ones and his successors. Five primary disciples uh, were there of him to Rabbi Yochanan Zakai. Who are these five disciples? Ve'eluheim, Rabbi Lezab ben Hurkanas, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, Rabbi Yosiah Kohen, Rabbi Shimon ben Esanel, and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. These are the five students of Rabbi Yochanan Zakai. The first two of them are the most significant of those five because they're going to be the actual leaders in Yavne, in that same city that Rabbi Yochum Zakkai uh, spared with his intercession uh, of the Romans, the two, two of the three leaders, two of the triumvirate of Yavne was these two people, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yahushua. Both of them were the teachers of the next generation following that, the next generation's greatest leader, uh, maybe one of the greatest leaders of all, of all time, Rabbi Akiva. He was a student both of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua. Okay, so these are the five students. Let's see Mission 11. Who are Yemona Shvacham? So Rabbi Yochum Zakkai would enumerate their praises. He had a different way of he had a different way of classifying the praises of each one of these people. Rabbi Elzebun Hortinus, uh, the first one, is Bor Sud She'enam Abed Tipa. He's like a, a cistern, like a pit, lined with plaster, sealed, that does not lose a drop. Any Torah that you drop into him, he gets it. He's not going to lose it. There's not going to be any attrition. That's the first one. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, Ashrei Yolanito, praiseworthy is she who bore him. He's so such a pristine student. I can just give praise to his mother. Uh, the commentaries explain that Rabbi Yeshua's mother would bring him as a baby, in, as an infant. She would bring him to the House of Scholarship just to be there. And she would just... She would keep him there, even though he was so young and didn't understand anything. But she wanted kind of to initiate him in a life of Torah. And she did it even when he didn't understand anything. She wanted him to be like surrounded by a society of Torah, which is most of the interpretations of, of, of what that praise is. It relates to his mother in because of her, uh, because of those activities that she did. Uh, Rabbi Yosir Cohen, Chassid, is a pious person. Rabbi Shimon ben Asanel, Yerichet. He is fearful of sin. And finally, Rabbi Zanarach ben Arach is Kemayan Hamizgaber. It's like a wellspring flowing ever stronger. 
He doesn't diminish in, in strength. He gets stronger and stronger. Now, I think it's in, generally speaking, it's important to, to, I think, take away from this. What is the role of a teacher? The role of the teacher is to identify and hone in on the skills and the capabilities of their student. Because if you don't know wh- how a student operates, how could you possibly know how to channel, how to direct your pedagogical efforts towards that student that they should maximize their ability? Uh, the story goes about Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, who was my grandfather's teacher. During World War One, the yeshiva disbanded. And several years later, the yeshiva regrouped and with 300 students. And this great teacher, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, after three months, he made the following proclamation. Of these 300 students, I spent now three months with them, I can tell you the positive characteristics of all 300. And most of them, I can also tell you their negative characteristics. That's what he said. And therefore, one of the great pedagogues of, of, of certainly the 20th century, he was able to identify the character of the student and therefore able to modify the teaching to the student. So it should be tailored to the student because we know everyone has different buttons to press to achieve the most optimal outcomes. And if you don't know which buttons to press, you're just throwing darts at a board. You don't know if your particular approach to the given student is going to be the best for the student to flourish. And here we see the same thing. This is an ancient idea. He's giving us the identity, the identifying the, the core positive characteristic of each one of his students, and you would assume that that actually informed how he treated them. I was, uh, this past Sunday, I went to visit my uncle, my father's sister's husband, who was the son-in-law of my grandfather. And he was hand-selected. And he told me on Sunday last week that my grandfather told him that he can only be an effective teacher over 60 students. That's what my grandfather told him. Means his his teacher, Rabbi Rucham, was able to do 400. He can only do 60 effectively. Which still is astonishing. What he's saying is that he's able to identify the positive and negative characteristics of 60 people. Which is, again, an astonishing thing. And then my uncle said about himself, because my uncle heads a big yeshiva in, in New York, he said about himself, if my father-in-law, if your grandfather can only do 60, I can only do 30. That's what he told me. Still not bad. Now, these people are some of the, we'll talk about them a little bit later on, but have very interesting, very colorful backstories, uh, especially Rabbi Eliezer, who's the first one that we mentioned. We're not going to go into details uh, right now because there's going to be a Mishnah later on. Uh, Mishnah number 15, that's going to be attributed to Rabbi Eliezer himself. And when we talk about him, we'll talk about his story. Uh, but he was the heir of, uh, of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai. Uh, and he's like a sealed pit. What does it mean like a sealed pit? It means that everything you taught him, he knew. He didn't lose a drop. This is just an astonishing statement about his commitment to Torah study. Didn't forget anything. Not because he was had photographic memory. Maybe he did. But because he invested his life in assuring that he wouldn't forget it. And what I found very surprising is that there's a teaching in the Talmud, in the Book of Sanhedrin, on page, I think it's 68a, which talks about Rabbi Eliezer's death. And it says that he commented to his student that he studied so much from his teachers 
but he didn't diminish from them any more than a dog licking from the sea diminishes water from the sea. If you have a dog coming to the sea and the dog wants to take a drink from the sea for the water, what percentage of the water is now less? It's obviously minute and infinitesimally small, obviously. And therefore, what he's saying is, I studied so much of my teachers, but they actually had so much more that they could have taught me they didn't. And to me, kind of comparing these two things, what the Mishnah is telling us about him is that everything that he's learned, he knew. But the Talmud says that he didn't know all kinds of information that his teachers knew and didn't teach him. Which means, again, interesting, I would say another pedagogical lesson, not everything that you know do you teach your students. Because obviously, if Rabbi Lezer was taught that as a cistern that is sealed, he wouldn't have not known it. And the fact that there was so much of his teacher's Torah that he didn't know, obviously, they, he wasn't taught that. Maybe we could also theorize, what does it mean to be compared to a cistern? Wouldn't it be nice, better for him to be told, for us to be told about Rabbi Lezer that he didn't forget anything? What is this idea that he's like a pit, like a, like a cistern that's dug into the ground and completely sealed? Maybe we could theorize that this is really what, how we're supposed to study Torah. Torah, you have to dig within yourself, so to speak, both to create humility, to create a vacuum within yourself, to show a lack within yourself that can be filled with Torah, but also you have to carve within yourself an area where Torah can come you're supposed to try to take Torah and bring it within you, not to take Torah and use it for something outside of you, which is an interesting uh, idea. And finally, in Mishnah number 12, he would classify their greatness by saying, he would say, if, if all of the sages of Israel were on one side of a balanced scale, the Eliezer ben Hurkanus Bekafshniya and Eliezer ben Hurkanus will be in the second side, the second pan. Machrias Kulam, he would outweigh them all. Which means this one scholar would outweigh all the other scholars to put together. A pretty, pretty astonishing statement. Abashal Omer Mishmo, Abashal would say in his name, If you would have all the sages of Israel on one side of the veil and steel. And also, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus would be with them. Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, Machrias Kulam. Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach would be in the second pan and he would outweigh them all. Next time, we're going to look at a very interesting mission that Rabbi Yochanan Mazaki is going to send his five students upon. And again, this seems to dovetail with our understanding that there is a change. Previously, it was all teachers telling students, and now we have a teacher asking the students, Give me your opinion which again seems like a very good pedagogical lesson, but a shift from what was happening previously. He's going to tell them now, okay, now I want to see what you have to say. I want to critique your take, which is a different form of, uh, of instruction. So we'll see that next time.